Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Molanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's Abacab by Genesis, their 1981 hit from the album of the same name. As we told you in last month's hit parade about the history of Genesis, frontman Phil Collins named the track, spelled A-B-A-C-A-B, after the letter pattern that pop songwriters commonly use to organize their songs. And that special part C, that's the bridge. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some Hit Parade trivia. This month, I'm fortunate to be joined by both a co-host and a guest. Let's bring in my co-host first. One more time, it's my colleague who helps me take it to the bridge, Slate Podcast senior producer, TJ Raphael. Hey, TJ. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. I just finished listening to the last full-length episode of Hit Parade on my way into the studio today. And one thing that really stood out to me while I was listening was the point that you made about how difficult it is for an artist who started in a group dynamic to really break away and formulate their own successful career. And I think that's what makes the whole story about Genesis and Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel so interesting in so many ways. Can you talk about a few other artists? You mentioned, of course, Justin Timberlake, who broke away from NSYNC. Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned Lionel Richie, who went on to have his own very successful career. Can you tell us about a couple performers that maybe stand out for you because they weren't able to break away? And I guess also, what makes that transition successful for for some and and for others? Why can some artists do it? And and what is that special sauce that maybe somebody needs? I mean, it is kind of a special sauce, and it's hard to predict sometimes. And and I think there have been solo careers that have not worked out that you you really could have sworn would have worked out. Um, And also, the ones you mentioned who were successful, Justin Timberlake, Lionel Richie, um, the four solo Beatles, particularly John Lennon and Paul McCartney. But, you know, George Harrison, too, had an enormous solo career. They all look inevitable in retrospect. But the fact is, one little thing goes wrong, or if the public just isn't able to change its perceptions about a performer, that's, you know, the death knell for a solo career. Inevitably, if you're talking about a very famous would-be solo artist who couldn't succeed, you have to talk about Mick Jagger. By the time he went solo in the 1980s, he was so associated with the Rolling Stones and so tied to the chemistry in that band, which is so special. The chemistry between him and Keith Richards, Charlie Watts, their amazing drummer, um, that it was hard for people to pull him apart. Many people, if anything, regard Mick Jagger's solo career as a bit of a punchline now because he performed in one of the most unintentionally hilarious duets of all time, the David Bowie duet Dancing in the Streets in 1985. Dancing in the street, dancing in Chicago, down in New Orleans, in New York City. 
Another example that leaps to mind is Debbie Harry, the front woman of Blondie. Again, Debbie Harry did not do too, too badly as a solo artist. She had singles like In Love With Love in the 80s that did well on the dance charts. But you would have thought after Blondie absolutely dominated the charts at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s that she would have gone on to just a massive solo career. When people hear the name Blondie, they almost equate it with Debbie Harry. In fact, frankly, Blondie has had to do interviews with Chris Stein and Jimmy Destry and the other members of the band in which they remind people, uh, Blondie is a band. It's not a woman. Um, Debbie Harry is not Blondie. But by the time Debbie Harry tried to go solo in the 80s, I think people just kind of assumed, well, she's Blondie. Blondie is Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry is Blondie. And that's why her solo career didn't take off. So I just think it's this ineffable thing where at a certain point, if somebody, again, like Freddie Mercury of Queen is a equated with Queen. Mick Jagger is equated with the Rolling Stones, Debbie Harry with Blondie. It's very difficult for the public to sort of accept them under their own name. Uh, The brand is the band. The brand is not the solo star. Obviously, one that did work very well is Beyonce. Um, She started out in Destiny's Child. They've had several hits. She was able to make her transition away from the group and become this pop megastar, you know, pop culture royalty at this point. And then occasionally she still does stuff with Destiny's Child. I don't think they've put out any new music, but they'll perform some of their old hits and everybody still goes crazy for that when the three of them get together. So she's one that's been able to make the successful transition away from a group. One that maybe is one and a half, um, I would say Adam Levine from Maroon 5. Um, Obviously, I think Maroon 5 still is together and, and producing music. But at the same time, Adam Levine is has sort of broken away theoretically from the group where he's sort of his own performer and has his own notoriety that isn't so wrapped up with Maroon 5. I love the examples you're giving. These are excellent 21st century examples. And the reason why both of them have kind of worked, although you're right about Adam Levine's being a special case, is that in each case, the group was almost a vehicle for the performer. I think everybody feels that Destiny's Child, who don't forget were a quartet originally with two different women before one was ejected and a a different person brought in in, you know, before the 90s were even over, um, that Destiny's Child were always going to be a vehicle for uh, for Beyonce's solo career, which is why that solo career took off as well as it did. Let's give Kelly Rowland her props. She's had some massive hits and has done far better as the so-called side person to Beyonce in Destiny's Child. Kelly Rowland has had an extremely respectable career. And then in the case of Adam Levine, He rarely records as Adam Levine. He has, you're absolutely right, he has his own persona, thanks largely to NBC's The Voice, on which he has developed this kind of lovable, smart-ass character that works for him, right? But when he records, he pretty much almost always records. There are a couple of examples. I believe there's a Gym Class Heroes song where he does the vocal line, and I believe he is credited as Adam Levine. But by and large, even on a song like Moves Like Jagger, or even on, you know, songs that for all intents and purposes, Girls Like You, the big number one hit from last year, feel like Adam Levine showcases, they are still branded as Maroon 5. And it's as if Adam Levine has learned the lesson from, say, a Mick Jagger, to 
talk about somebody who's in the title of one of his most famous number one songs. He's learned the lesson from Mick Jagger that if if Maroon 5 is the brand, I'm going to stick to the brand, even if I'm recording with rappers and even if there aren't many guitars. And this, frankly, just doesn't sound that much like a Maroon 5 song anymore. Maroon 5 is the brand. That's what I bring to the table. That's how I get on the radio. And so Adam Levine is almost... You might say the cautionary tale for the solo career. So uh, those are both excellent examples, actually. Awesome. Let's take a quick break and then we'll play some trivia. Excellent. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now is the moment in this episode of Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia, and we're delighted to be joined today by Drew. Uh, Drew, can you hear us? I can. Where are you joining us from, Drew? Uh, so right now I'm at a summer camp in the North Georgia mountains. Wow, that sounds bucolic. <laughs> Quite pleasant. Uh, I understand that during the regular school year you are a high school teacher, is that right? I am. I, uh, I'm the director of the music program at a small private high school on the north side of Atlanta. Oh, well, we couldn't ask for a better trivia contestant. That's great. Uh, one other question I should ask you, are you a Slate Plus member? Yes, I am. That's fantastic. How long have you been a Slate Plus member? Uh, I think for the better part of a year. Uh, and this is the moment when I like to remind everyone on these Bridge episodes that while this episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up. All right, Drew, so we're going to do our usual three-question quiz. As you may recall from past episodes, the first trivia question will be a throwback to the last full-length Hit Parade episode, and the next two will be a preview of the next Hit Parade episode. Uh, and then you're going to get to turn the tables on me, quiz me on a trivia question of your own. So are you ready for some trivia? I am. Wonderful. Here we go. Question one. In last month's episode, we talked about multiple songs by current and former members of Genesis that were all competing directly on the charts in the summer of 1986. Which of these was not one of those hits from that summer? A. Mike and the Mechanics, All I Need is a Miracle. B. Peter Gabriel, Sledgehammer. C. GTR, When the Heart Rules the Mind. Or D. Phil Collins, Susudio. I'm going to go with A. I'm sorry. The correct answer was D, Susudio. That Phil Collins number one hit did reach the top in July of 1985, while all of the others hit in June and July of 1986. All right. No big deal. Uh, One down, two to go. Uh, We've got two more for you that are going to be a preview of the next episode. Are you ready for some more trivia? Yes. All right. Here we go. Question two. 
This is a fairly straightforward question. In Billboard album chart history from 1955 to the present, what album has spent the most weeks at number one? A. The soundtrack to West Side Story. B. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. C. Michael Jackson's Thriller. Or D. Adele's 21. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess A. That is exactly correct. The correct answer is A. West Side Story. Oh, so pretty, I feel pretty and witty and gay, and I pity any girl who's in me today. The soundtrack to the movie version of the legendary Broadway musical is still, more than six decades later, the longest-lasting number one album in history. It spent 54 weeks, more than a year, on top of the album chart. Fantastic. Nice going, Drew. Thanks. You're one for two, and you've got one more question to go. Are you ready for question three? Yes. Here we go. Question three. In 1964, the Beatles dominated the Hot 100, as we told you about in an early episode of Hit Parade. They had three consecutive, uninterrupted number ones, still an unbeaten chart feat. However, what song finally ejected the Beatles from number one in May of 1964? A. Mary Wells' My Guy. B. Louis Armstrong's Hello, Dolly. C. The Beach Boys' I Get Around. Or D, The Four Seasons Ragdoll? Uh, I'm going to say B, Louis Armstrong. And that is exactly right. The correct answer is B, Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly. This is Louis Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. Satchmo's cover of the title song from the Smash 1964 Broadway musical was not only an unlikely number one hit, it ushered the Beatles out of the Hot 100's number one spot after they dominated it for 14 straight weeks. Excellent. You killed it on our two preview questions. Nice going, Drew. Thank you. Are, are you a fan of uh, Broadway musical music, or is, is that just a field of expertise for you? Uh, I, I am a fan. I truthfully was in West Side Story in high school. Oh, no wonder. So you are familiar with the soundtrack to West Side Story. That's great. Now is the point where you get to turn the tables on me and ask me a trivia question. Have you brought a question for me, Drew? I do, Chris. All right. Lay it on me. Broadway theater has long had deep connections to pop stars. And although plenty of stars have sampled and covered Broadway hits, Broadway has also looked to the pop charts for inspiration. Which diva's life was recently turned into a Broadway musical? Is it A, Madonna, B, Cher, C, Aretha Franklin, or D, Whitney Houston? Well, having just watched the Tonys this week and having seen uh, the lead actress from this musical take home the Tony for Best Actress in a Musical, I think I'm going to go with B, Cher. Uh, the correct answer is B. Share. Madonna, Share, Whitney, and Aretha all have connections to Broadway, but it is Share who has had an entire Broadway show dedicated to her life. The Cher Show is currently on Broadway and covers her six decades of stardom. 
This week, it even took home a Tony Award when Cher Show cast member Stephanie J. Block won for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad that uh, I was watching the Tonys and that I got that one. So uh, we all get to walk away with a victory this uh, episode of The Bridge. Uh, Drew, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, I hope we haven't uh, taken you too far away from camp today. Uh, all I missed was uh, fish sticks and mac and cheese in the dining hall. So, no, thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, speaking of the Tonys, I'm now excited to welcome my special guest. Elizabeth Kraft is an assistant professor of musicology at the University of Utah. Her research focuses on musical theater from the early 20th century to the present. She's published on the musicals of Lin-Manuel Miranda, including a recent article on the politics of Hamilton. And she's currently working on a book on Broadway legend George M. Cohan. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. And you're joining us from uh, quite a ways off. Where are you uh, calling us from? I am here in beautiful, mountainous Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, the reason uh, we wanted to have you on this episode of uh, Hit Parade the Bridge is that uh, we were thinking about Broadway this month, given uh, the Tony Awards, which were, uh, as we're recording, just this last Sunday. And uh, thinking about uh, popular song as reflected by the Broadway musical and, and the American musical as an art form. And you are an expert in that. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit today about what it takes for a Broadway song to infiltrate the larger popular culture. Um, and feel free to mention um, any of this year's Tony nominees. Uh, do you think any of them stand a chance of making that kind of crossover? Yeah, great questions. Um, let's start with what does it take for a Broadway song to infiltrate pop culture? And it's such a tricky thing to know. I mean, I think a lot of the times the the Broadway shows that are the most successful are the ones that you never saw coming. Um, Hamilton is a great example. Who would have thought a rap musical uh, about Alexander Hamilton would be such a mega hit? Right. And well, if it were easy to figure out, I'm sure every producer on Broadway would, you know, be replicating that formula right now. And perhaps there is no formula. You also made a very good point about how the fact that um, popular song and the Broadway style or the show tune style used to be much closer to each other. Um, and your scholarship is in the American musical of the 20th century um, up to the present day. How did the American Broadway musical take shape in the 20th century? And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about its relationship to popular culture. Yeah. In the early 20th century, uh, the musical was popular culture. There wasn't um, a, a big difference. You had shows, songs from shows were, were played on stage, but then sold as sheet music that people would play and sing at the piano in their homes. Um, those songs would be recorded on on phonograph um, and then on radio, keeping up with the technology of the day. 
Um, the guy I study a lot right now, George M. Cohan, his songs, you could find his songs. Um, Give My Regards to Broadway is actually from a show. It's from a show called Little Johnny Jones. And there's there were phonograph recordings of that. Um, the In the 20s and 30s, the, the songwriters like Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, the Gershwins, um, they were popular music. And in fact, they're still the American songbook. That started to change um, in the the mid-20th century, and then especially in the later 20th century. One thing I talk about a little bit in my writing about rock and roll and popular music since basically the 1950s is that um, the advent of the self-contained band and the, you know, the writer like John Lennon and Paul McCartney of the Beatles who wrote their own material tended to change the business model of songwriting, you know, the Tin Pan Alley model or later the Brill Building model. I imagine that that's the story of Broadway, too, right? What changed Broadway's relationship to popular music and my interest, the pop charts? I think there are a couple of things. Um, the the big the biggest one is that that people talk about is the the rise of rock. All of a sudden, um, there was a new form of popular music that Broadway songwriters weren't using in their shows, and that took over the charts. Um, another one was the rise of what musical theater scholars call the integrated musical. Um, so the integrated musical means a show that the songs support the plot and they develop the character and the dance also supports the plot and the characters. Um, everything's working together. It's more like the the operatic ideal of the Gesamtkunstwerk. Let's say Oklahoma is a watershed moment for the, the integrated musical, and that's in the 1940s. We're only saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay. <laughs> So you mentioned Oklahoma, which uh, just won a Tony uh, this weekend uh, for a revival. Uh, so obviously that's a show that's got strong bones and lives on f to this day. Uh, but then we've really seen Broadway in the 21st century uh, generate some massive hits, uh, not just shows like Hamilton, which of course everybody knows at this point, but uh, shows like Dear Evan Hansen. Um, this week we saw Town sweep the Tonys. Uh, we've seen shows like Waitress, uh, some of which are adapted. Waitress was adapted from a movie. Um, how has Broadway influenced pop or been influenced by pop, if you can talk about that, in the 21st century, both on its own terms, show tunes that have become hits and maybe even as a flavor in today's popular music? Yeah, it's such an exciting time to be thinking about musical theater. Um, in the 80s and 90s, there were, people were kind of um, bemoaning the the demise of the Broadway musical, that it was its best days were behind it. And now, with especially with the success of Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen and shows like it, people are kind of talking about a second golden age. There is um, all of a sudden a link between Broadway and a broader pop culture again. We're seeing more Broadway film musicals, film adaptations of Broadway musicals or film musicals that are newly written. And then songs that borrow from Broadway hits as well, like Ariana Grande and Gwen Stefani apparently loves musicals. So she did Rich Girl with um, If I Were a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof. And then she also did um, Wind It Up with Lonely Goat Herd. You got to let the 
Well, this has been enormously informative, Elizabeth. I can't thank you enough for being on. And um, as my listeners can probably tell by this conversation we've had about Broadway and uh, Broadway music and its relationship with the charts, that's going to be the theme of the next full-length episode of Hit Parade. Uh, Like Elizabeth has been saying throughout this conversation, Broadway music was once synonymous with American hit music, uh, and the rock era helped change that. But certain musicals and certain Broadway composers and performers and songs have continued to infiltrate the pop landscape and the charts. So in a way, you may be listening to things that come from the world of show tunes on your radio without even knowing it. Um, Elizabeth, uh, you were pointing out that some of the tropes that uh, we hear in the Broadway musical do eventually make their way into popular song. Uh, does that uh, ring a bell for you? Absolutely. Um, those those songs are part of our collective vocabulary. It's hard to grow up not knowing things like The Sound of Music or Annie. So whether it's a, a pop star borrowing those and, and sampling them in a song or... Um, whether it's the interplay between jukebox musicals, we, we do the, the, the link between Broadway and the pop charts is not lost. From standing on the corners bopping to driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen, for dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard, from the dope spot with the smoke block clinging the murder scene. I want to thank Elizabeth Kraft for being such an informative and gracious Hit Parade The Bridge guest. And uh, thanks, as always, additionally to my co-host, TJ Raphael. I'm Chris Melanfi. Keep on marching on the one. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.